So I have a few thoughts regarding Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. This particular story has been of significant interest to me recently, partly because it is such a short narrative and so well known that my concern, granted probably unfairly, is that in teaching it, we can very easily fall into a rut of things that are true, but without really quite going that next little step to fully understanding what it is that God is showing us about the human condition. So I guess, for a caveat, one of the other things I've been looking at is the dual nature of Christ, fully human and fully God. And in the temptation in the wilderness, we see the two of those natures playing out simultaneously side by side. And it's Jesus's human nature that is of interest to me here that I think if we tease it out a little bit is going to be very illustrative for how it is that we can look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in looking to him, what we do is we actually look at this passage with that other reference from Hebrews in mind. What is it that we can learn and not just uh, practice because Jesus is a good example, but do so in the same manner that he did, fully relying on the power of God in order to do this. But before we can look at this in chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, we actually probably have to back up and look at chapter 3, because chapter 3 sets this up nicely. It's not just a point-by-point narrative, but the entire thing interweaves together. So John the Baptist comes out and mentions you know, that he's baptizing for forgiveness of sins. The first thing he says is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the idea of repentance, a lot of pastors have talked about, is this idea of a turning, a turning away from sin, a turning to God. Well, isn't that what the Pharisees were talking about? Well, maybe in a deluded kind of a way, how do you turn to God? You perform all the rituals, you keep all the laws and all the rules, but none of that really gets it to the heart of the greatest commandment of worshiping the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Anybody can follow the rules, and anybody can follow the rules diligently, and anybody can follow the rules because they think they're good, but that in and of itself doesn't even, doesn't really translate to a love of the rules. And so the same would be true here. You can obey the commands of God and even want to obey the commands of God because that makes you righteous, but do so without actually loving God. And there's also all the rest of your life when you aren't following rules. Like when the, quote, rules don't really play into the activities and the tasks that you're trying to accomplish. And so what John is saying is repent. So turn to God, but the entirety of yourself, the wholeness of your thought process which seems to be what's going on here. There's another place where I could tease out how this is actually a really good mirror parallel to what happens in the garden when Eve and Adam eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. But that's a different conversation for a different day. So John talks about repentance because the kingdom of God is coming. The time is now. And interestingly, he sees that the Pharisees and Sadducees, so the religious leaders of the time, were coming to his baptism. And he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So I found that interesting. Now, were they simply coming to see his baptisms? 
or were they coming to be baptized? Now, there was a history of some Jewish baptisms or baptism in Judaism for the sake of some kind of a ritualistic cleansing. But even here, John is saying, I'm not necessarily offering ritualistic cleansing, not in a traditional way. What I'm calling you to do is to completely reorient the core of how you think, how you see, believe, and how you behave. And so if the Pharisees and Sadducees are basically the ones who are doing it all right, the ones who are obeying all the laws and should stand, be the ones standing righteous before God, well, what do they have to be here to be baptized for? Who warned them that they were actually in danger of the wrath to come? So John calls them out, interestingly enough, and then Jesus comes. Now, granted, this is a little bit that I'm skipping over, partly because it's just not germane to the ultimate point that I'm trying to make. But Jesus comes, and he gets baptized, and here we need to camp out for a second. And this is where I think the dual nature comes in a little bit. Now, as C.S. Lewis said, or at least hinted at, intimated, I am no theologian. And that is far more true of me than it was of Lewis. But if you'll indulge me, I have a couple thoughts. I have heard it referenced that Jesus had nothing to repent of, which Orthodox Christianity would hold to be true. Jesus would have been sinless, have, having committed no sin for the entirety of his life. So why would he come to be baptized? Well, one one suggestion that is pretty pretty well accepted is that his baptism was actually more of an anointing, an anointing into his high priesthood, which is also interesting, I think, because it's in the letters of Hebrews. It really teases out Jesus's qualification to be the perfect high priest, and a significant part of that qualification is his humanity, that like other high priests, he is able to empathize with those to whom and on whose behalf he ministers because he shares certain commonalities with them and with their condition. The same is true of Jesus. And it is immediately after being baptized that Jesus is put in a position to actually put his money where his mouth is, so to speak, and live a life of dedication to God, come what may. Of living, modeling, better, probably, modeling what, for a normal human being, a repentant life would be like. And so, you could argue that Jesus' baptism is a both and. It is an anointing of himself, uh, it is an anointing of him as the, as the, the, um, the great high priest, and then there's an argument or a question as to why the Holy Spirit came down, because Jesus would have, as truly God, would have been in communion with the Holy Spirit, that is true, and it's not that he was absent the power of God before that point, but what I'm hypothesizing, spitballing, is that the Holy Spirit comes down, functions as a symbol of that anointing, but also demonstrates what is it that is going to enable the human being to live a life of repentance, well, it's the aid of the power of God. And so, having been anointed with the Holy Spirit, Jesus then goes out into the wilderness. He goes out into the world. We often equate in Christian circles this world with a wilderness, you know, through which we are simply passing. One is going to be hard and rough, not our ultimate home. It's not the promised land on the other side of the Jordan. 
So Jesus goes out into the wilderness, led by the Spirit. So that's probably really significant. So did the Spirit take him there? Is like a direct location? Yeah, probably in this instance. But then there's also the idea of being led or being guided. Are we being guided in the entirety of our lives by the primary direction of the Holy Spirit? So then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So when Jesus goes into the wilderness, he fasts. And fasting is a specific activity to focus the attention on God. A ritualistic attempt to keep one's engagement completely fixed on God. And after a certain point, you know, 40 days and 40 nights, the text says that Jesus was hungry. And then this next, this first temptation is a little bit interesting because James says we are, we sin when we are lured and tempted or we're, yeah, we sin when we are lured and enticed or we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. Well, and that, te- that temptation ultimately leads to sin. Well, what is the sin with which the devil was tempting Jesus by presenting a particular desire? I mean, it's not a sin to eat. And how exactly would it have been a sin against God to turn stones into bread? But I think it's actually staring us right in the face. So Jesus was hungry. He was feeling the significant effects of food deprivation, both physically and probably psychologically. And there have been studies that show the effects of long-term food deprivation on the human psyche, mental capacities, reasoning, decision-making skills, not to mention delirium. And the tempter came, so he's hungry, and the tempter came and say, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In other words, feed yourself. Take care of yourself. Do what you have to do. You're hungry, so meet your need. And Jesus' response, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now that is true. But let's look back at Deuteronomy 8. And this is remember the Lord your God. It's an admonition to the Israelites for when they get into the promised land. So the starting in verse 1, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, in order that you may live and multiply and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So in other words, successful, thriving living is not just about logistics, but is primarily about abiding by and in the commands of God. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you, With manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live 
by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the Lord allowed the Israelites to hunger so that they could be in a position to recognize that he would provide. What's interesting is that here Jesus seems to be foreshadowing what he's about to say in Matthew chapter 7 when he's talking about anxiety. No, not 7. It's 6. Matthew chapter 6 when he's talking about anxiety, he's basically saying, but in different words, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. For the Lord will provide for you, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and what you need will be provided to you because essentially the ultimate point is, okay, so you get food. Great. You get shelter. Great. You're not hungry anymore. You're dry. Awesome. What does it profit a man to gain these things but lose his soul? So man does not live by bread alone. Jesus was allowed to be hungry, but Jesus also knew that if he turned this stone, or I'm confident rather, that Jesus knew that if he'd have turned those stones into bread, what he would have been doing is taking his attention off of God. Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. Well, God had already provided food, and God would continue to provide the food that she needed. And the same is true for us. And if God is withholding, then there is a purpose. So what do we do? We keep our attention on God. And we don't let our circumstances force us into a position where we make a decision to take care of ourselves. Because even if it's not in this instance, that sets the precedence of relying on ourselves to take care of ourselves and not actually heeding the purposes of God. Okay, so then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple... And said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Okay, now this one is fun. This one is Psalm 91. So give me a second. Let me hit pause on you for just a little bit. Maybe. Hold on. So what I find interesting about Psalm 91 is actually how it begins. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It's that opening line. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So in other words, the Lord takes care of those who abide in in him abide in his ways obey his commands rely on him trust him cling to him and yes he will as a later verse says command his angels concerning you but that's actually not what satan is presenting to jesus jesus is presenting a situation in which Actually, I'm going to back up for a second. Jesus' response is also telling because it's an interesting correlation of verses. Uh, Jesus' response, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that comes out of Deuteronomy 6, chapter, uh, verse 16. 
And it's at this point where the Israelites are in the wilderness, but they're complaining about not having any water. And, um, all right, sorry, y'all. So, better yet. All right, so the devil tempts Jesus by saying, throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So in other words, God's going to take care of you. So just kind of live as you will. And Jesus responds, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What Jesus is doing is quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, comma, as you tested him at Massah. Well, what happened at Massah? That's Exodus chapter 17, which is the famous episode of Moses providing Israel with water by striking a rock because Israel is starting to get thirsty, just like Jesus was hungry. And they start complaining. And complaining isn't actually strong enough. It's, you know, it's legitimate. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses says, uh, cries to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? And ultimately, God says, take the staff with which you parted the sea, hit this rock, and water will flow. But then, after that, uh, Moses called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, which both mean uh, testing and grumbling, respectively, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us? So basically, what the, temp what the devil is tempting Jesus with is this scenario of as we go through life, is the Lord among us or not? Is he going to take care of me or not? Well, God isn't commanding Jesus to throw himself from the temple. So the tempter is almost saying, do whatever you will and you should be fine because didn't God say he's going to protect you and take care of you? Well, yeah, but let's go back to the beginning of verse 91. Or Psalm 91, those essentially who abide in the Lord, who submit their ways to him, who obey his laws, are guided by his spirit. These are the ones about whom he will command his angels and that he will protect from stumbling. And we're going to hit this again in a little bit after we get out of the third temptation. But then the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That's important, in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And at this point, Jesus gets fed up and says, be gone, Satan, which is interesting because that's also striking me as very similar to what he says to Peter eventually. And he quotes, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, that's very true, but here's probably the one where I'm convinced that we maybe most accidentally caricature it. And it's what is it that Jesus was being presented with? This actually reminds me a lot about financial self-help books recently. And I'm thinking of a couple in particular, uh, Rich, Dad by, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which I actually greatly appreciate. But also another one that I've read recently called Set for Life by a guy named Scott Trench. And a lot of the general thinking is, you know, this idea of setting yourself up in financial independence. Well, A, independence actually has an opposite and it's called slavery. 
or financial freedom rather. And if you're not financially free, you're financially enslaved. That's just how logical arguments work. But it's this idea of setting up the logistics of your life in such a way that are most conducive for your thriving the way you understand it. And so a lot of these financial self-help books talk about financial freedom is like what you can do with it. You can live securely. You can have what you wish eventually when you wish. You are fully in autonomous control of your well-being. You have primary dominance over your life. But what's required? A hyperfixation on money or accounting or making the proper deals. It's again, it's a it's a direction of where is your focus? Why was Jesus fasting in the first place? To keep his eyes focused on God. And that first temptation, well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Keep yourself focused on God. Did he not say he would command his angels concerning you, that they would uphold you lest you dash your foot against a stone? Yeah, those who keep their focus and abide in God. And so here he presents him with a full, a full life where he is sovereign over it. All he has to do is submit himself to the guidance of something else. And not God. And he says, no, you shall worship the Lord your God only. Meaning that God is the only focus of how our lives are going to play out. Only in submitting to him and seeking first his kingdom will our lives ever be set. Now, to go back to my analogy, yes, be financially literate. But where's your focus? Are we so consumed with these new logistics that we've learned about how to organize our lives and our finances and set ourselves up to coast, essentially, like a king on his throne? Or are we going to get to points where we recognize that we're not in control, that we have to go with the flow, that maybe a deal isn't the best one to be made, that there are other perspectives? So what Jesus shows us in the wilderness is what it is actually like to be led by the Spirit when confronted with some of the most fundamental circumstances in human life that could draw our focus away. And it's at the point that that devil flees from him and Jesus goes, uh, begins his ministry in Nazareth, and there's probably, a, well, it is a significant quote, I can't say probably, there's a significant quote that Matthew gives um, from Isaiah about why he goes to Zebulun and Naphtali specifically. But what I find interesting is once he's there, from there, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And the first thing he says when he begins to preach is, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Live a life of complete devotion to God, abiding in his law, submitting to his will, and being pliably guided 
by his spirit. So I find it interesting that all that very nicely sets up what Jesus is about to tease out in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that that might actually be a way of understanding Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in a way that is truly applicable. What is it that the pioneer and culminator of our faith, other ways to to consider that excerpt out of Hebrews, is trying, not trying, what is it that he is showing us? What are we seeing when we look at him as we lay aside every sin that ensnares and entangles? All right, that's all I got, guys. Till next time.